Snow falls on an old apartment. Inside, the holiday season is in swing. On the first floor, cokes are poured and stories shared among friends. Three flights up, one generation passes down the family recipe to the next. Inside every home, there's magic. Coca-Cola. Real magic. Enjoy the real magic of the season with close friends, family, and refreshing Coca-Cola paired with all your holiday meals. Hi, this is Jay Billis of ESPN, and you're listening to the ML Sports Platter. The ML Sports Platter is back with you all over the major platforms like Spotify, Apple, Google, Stitcher, and Deezer. And also you can get it on iHeartMedia and on Amazon Music as well. We're brought to you by Liverpool Physical Therapy. Don't forget LiverpoolPhysicalTherapy.com is a website. Pete and Mike doing an amazing job. No doctor prescription is necessary for the first 10 physical therapy visits in New York State, make sure you get on over to Liverpool Physical Therapy. Tip of the cap, thanks as well to Presswick Golf, the Syracuse Fitness Store, Welch and Company Jewelers, and Bryant and Stratton College, the official college of the ML Sports Platter. Two and four-year degrees are always starting. Two great locations in the central New York area as well. James Street and, uh, of course, uh, Route 57 in Liverpool. They've got that graphic uh, design show coming up, so make sure you check out their Facebook and Instagram for that, and also the nursing program just announced recently as well. BryantStratton.edu, an amazing time to be a Bobcat. It's now Bryant Stratton College of Syracuse, the official college of the ML Sports Platter. Well, it's out, just released a few days ago, and it is spectacular. It is called The Master, the long run and beautiful game of Roger Federer. It's a major biography of the greatest men's tennis player of the modern era, and the author joins us now, Christopher Clary. You can get it all over the place, uh, you know, major bookstores, online where books are sold, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, you name it. And I can't wait to talk to Chris about Roger Federer and his amazing career and if Fed is pretty close to the finish line. Chris, welcome aboard here. Thank you for a few minutes, man. Great to have you. Hey, thanks so much, Mike. I appreciate that. It definitely was a, a real challenge to try to sum it all up. And uh, Even though I went over 400 pages, <laughs> it was definitely a... A big, a big ask, and I, I really uh, hated and enjoyed the process in equal measure. So I have a ton of authors on all the time, and I'm always intrigued on each of their answers to this question. A biography. You can write it when someone is early in a career. You can write it when they retire. You can write it when they're dead. You can, I mean, there's a lot of different spots to write a bio. Why Roger Federer's bio now? Because I felt the main body of work that he was going to do was over. Uh, I did the time I started to work on the book. Um, things were starting to turn after that 2019 final at Wimbledon. People may remember when he had two match points against Djokovic. Sure. Would have been Rogers' greatest achievement to win that match. Couldn't quite seal the deal, and you could just feel a little bit of the air going out of the tires after that. And then the injuries came and the pandemic. So it just seemed like the right time to sum up this amazing career. And also, to be honest with you, I wrote it for two reasons. For Roger's career, but also because of the whole era in men's tennis. And the book, it's Roger's, it's Roger's biography, no doubt. But really, he's a thread, and there's a lot of men's tennis in this era in there as well. A lot about Nadal, a lot about Djokovic, a lot about his early rivals like Andy Roddick. Some may remember, and and Murat Safin, and Leighton Hewitt. So I really wanted to explore those rivalries and the whole era. And Roger was a great way to do that. And I just, I just felt like... At some point, I'm sure he'll do his autobiography. Yeah. I can't be part of that as a New York Times writer. I thought it was a good time to to sort of uh, 
memorialized and, and celebrate this career, which has been remarkable. So is he the greatest player right now? And do you think he'll be that title, if you believe that, in, in, in years to come? As short as a couple of years with the way Jokers win in these Grand Slams. You know, Mike, it's a great question. I personally don't really subscribe to the greatest of all time concept. I okay. feel like men's tennis is just too hard because the game's changed so much. And for a long time, until 1968, a lot of the best players turned pro and they couldn't even play in the Grand Slams because they were they were barred from those events. So that's become the big measuring stick for today and greatness, but you just can't compare it to the past, you know. And guys like uh, Rod Laver, who did the Grand Slam that Djokovic is chasing now, I'm trying to do the same thing. Laver did it twice, but... Labor missed five years of Grand Slam play because he turned pro. So all those things make it hard to make a greatest of all time statement. But I think you can certainly talk about this era. And what does the greatest mean, though? Is the greatest between the lines or is the greatest the whole package? So for me, between the lines, I think Novak is well on his way to be the best player between the lines of this era. But if you look at the whole package in terms of uh, appeal of the game, connection with the fans, building support for the sport, doing all sorts of things in terms of on-court and off that uh, advance the game. I think bringing so much pleasure to people on, on all sides of the sport. I think Roger has a strong argument to be the greatest ever because I think it's just an incredible package. Chris Clary, our guest, of course, New York Times tennis correspondent. Brand new book is out, major biography on Roger Federer. It's called The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. Amazon.com, online where books are sold and uh, nearby bookstores as well. When do you think, Chris, that Roger Federer's brand, you know, the brand of him, the gear, the appeal, the image, the global impact, all the brand of Fed, when do you think that took off? It's interesting you ask that, Mike, because the New York Times Magazine just uh, excerpted the book. Um, it'll be it's online already. It'll be out this Sunday. And at the chapter they chose to focus on, I don't know how far you got in the book, but chapter they chose to focus on was kind of the Federer Inc. chapter where we talk about that evolution of his business. And it was really, you know, in the early 2000s, he was having a hard time even renewing his Nike contract, as hard as that is to believe. You know, they didn't want to give him what his agent thought he was worth, and nobody else was buying either. There was a lot of doubt about Roger's ability to really break through at the highest level. But he got through that. He was his own, he was his own agent for a while with his family. He kind of didn't have a formal agent. But things started to really go in a strong direction when he joined up with uh, his agent now, Tony Godsick, who used to be with IMG. And Tony had worked with tennis players like Lindsey Davenport and others in the past, had a lot of experience in the sport, smart guy. And he really positioned Roger around the world as a gentleman and as an uh, ambassador for the sport. And then he really tapped into those Swiss corporations who are international in scope, um, people like you know Rolex, and got them to buy into Roger. And they were right. Roger had had legs and appeal and he had a long running career, but that's when things really started to go. And, uh, when Nike renewed his deal, eventually the second time around under guys, like there was no problem getting the money that he wanted. So ultimately he left Nike to go with Uniqlo, which is an interesting move. Very, very lucrative for him. Not sure it was the right move necessarily in terms of branding, but that's what he did later on. But he has, uh, he's the first tennis player that we know of who's earned a billion dollars on court and off. And I'm sure he's not done yet. He's not done yet. Yeah, no doubt. Speaking of that, how how when does it end? When does his career end, or when does the money making end? The, well, the money might not stop ever, right? But like, the career. You know, I think we're very, very close. Yeah, me He's, too. I was in some ways he could have easily been a good moment now with his latest knee surgery. He's leaving the 
the tour for an extended period again. He's 40 years old. He just turned 40. I mean, obviously, you see guys like Tom Brady and Phil, Phil Mickelson. You know we've broken through a barrier here and things are possible that weren't possible before. Athletes are taking care of themselves better and you have more technology to help you out, all kinds of things. And also, it's a mental barrier. So I think Rodgers passed that and he could come back from this latest surgery and play. I just don't see him being able to compete for the biggest, biggest titles. Maybe on an outside level on grass, though, because there's so few guys who master grass. But I just think it's going to be so tough. I mean, you're getting to a stage, quickness really matters in tennis. And um, there are a lot of young guys coming up that are very good, like Daniel Medvedev and Sissipas yeah. and Zverev, who will all compete at the U.S. Open. And Novak's still very much in the mix and five years younger. You know, the one thing that I think people don't understand, and they don't, I don't think, understand it with hockey as well, Chris, is that tennis players, the body, I mean, you brought up Brady, and no disrespect to him, obviously. He's played in 10 Super Bowls, he's won seven, and he's not done yet. But the quarterback position, it's become easier to play quarterback. Uh, you're protected quite a bit. If you have an offense, you can you know, kind of quickly release the ball. I'm not saying you can ever get injured. Of course you can get injured. You can get injured in any sport. But the conditioning and the grind of the body, I always talk about this with hockey guys. I don't know how the hell they do it. With all the preseason games, 82 regular season games, if you go to a cup run, I mean, like a guy like Sidney Crosby was playing, you know, four or 500 hockey games in a few seasons, plus practice, plus travel. Tennis is kind of like that, is it not? I mean, these guys are grinding like crazy. Their body takes a toll. They're stopping and starting all the time. It is a real, real, real body tester. Uh, and and Federer, I just, I you know, it, it's really, to, to me, it's almost mind-boggling that he's still playing, that any of these guys are still playing. Because I remember back in the day when it was 33 was old, right? Like, tennis used to have a cap of 35, and he's still going. Yeah, yeah. And actually, the cap was even lower there for a little while. True. Campers was done by, by 31. 31, yeah. Boris, Boris Becker and Edberg were done around then. Yep. Steffi Graf retired around that time, too. And he had Agassi, who was considered the old man of the sport. Right. He got to about 34, 35, right? right? So that was that. And Andre could barely walk by the end of yeah. his back. Yeah. So Roger's blown through all those sorts of things. He's done it, you know, probably some good genes in the way he moves. He's so fluid. But a lot of it really is very intentional. He's been very smart about it. His physical training. Said the same fitness trainer, a guy named Pierre Paganini, for almost his whole career. They've really been innovative in what they've done, tried to really match the fitness exactly to what he needed to do in tennis, which they call an explosive endurance sport, which is really interesting. You think about it. Tennis is like these five, 10 second bursts, and then you stop and you towel off 25 seconds, then you do it again, five, 10 seconds. But you can do this sort of rhythm for three to five hours, you know, uh, seven times in two weeks if you're playing a slam. So that really is a, an unusual sort of pattern of the physical movement and behavior there. And they've really tailored it with these guys today. Roger is one of the precursors of that, or the forerunners of that. And it's allowed him to really stay healthy longer than most guys ever could. And also, he's been really smart about his scheduling and not overplaying. Because what you're describing is absolutely true. I mean, an NHL guy, it's hard for you to back out of the games. You're being paid to play, right? Yeah. A tennis player can pick and choose, except for the Grand Slam tournaments, where they want to play, really. And Roger's been really smart knowing himself and his body about taking breaks and real breaks, you know, really basically turning off the phone, which Walt more of us should do really. And then coming back to the, the circuit really fresh. And that's been really, really one of the big keys to his longevity. Christopher Clary, our guest here at Christopher Clary on Twitter, the New York times tennis correspondent with a brand new bio on the great Roger Federer. It's all over major bookstores, amazon.com and online platforms where books are sold. It's called the master, the long run and beautiful game 
of Roger Federer. A um, couple more for you, Chris. And 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 what what is it? Do you think that has given Fed so much trouble? He has so much, so many problems one on one with Nadal, right? One on one with Djokovic. Those two guys, they they have over the years had his number. Why? You know, it wasn't always. It's interesting. That, that is true. You look at the absolute numbers now. Both those guys have the edge on them, and Rafa's edge is a bit bigger than Novak's. But you know, for a long time, you know, Roger did have Novak uh, pretty under control in the early phases of Novak's career until Novak really figured out his his own endurance issues and improved his own game, and Roger maybe dropped out slightly. But Rafa, you're right. Rafa's been a problem from the beginning, really, and, and not only on clay. If you, their first ever match, which I went back and watched for the book, it's an interesting part of the part of the book itself was their first match in Miami. Not a lot of people outside of the really, really experts in tennis knew who Rafa was. And Roger played him in his first match in Miami, and Rafa beat him. He came out of the blocks in their first meeting, and teenage guy from Mallorca, and just kind of shocked the world in Federer, who was number one at the time, and beat him. So that was a hard court. Pretty slow one, but still a hard court. And then Nadal dominated him on clay, largely because Nadal's just a fantastic clay court player, beats up on everybody, but also because Roger's you know, most eye-catching shot in a lot of ways is that one-handed backhand. And he was using a pretty small-headed racket. And Nadal, with his big, big top spin, you know, very, very heavy ball, can kind of wrench the racket out of your hands if you make a missed contact. It was just very hard for Roger in long rallies to maintain his accuracy and consistency. He eventually would break down on the backhand side. And so it took him a lot of time to solve that. And eventually he ended up going to a bigger-headed racket quite later in his career. And actually since then, um, and improving his drive back in, he's been able to beat Rafa more than he's more than he's lost. But it took a long time. What do you hope people say about this book when they get done reading it? That they really understood the process uh, that made him great, and how much harder it was than it looked, and that they really get to know really all the key figures in his life, not only his life but the era in which he played. And I really, I really enjoyed that part of it kind of digging in. I've had a lot of interviews with Djokovic and Nadal over the years as well, kind of digging into their backstories and kind of setting the stage within the book. I think, you know, on a printed page, tennis stories can be tough sometimes because there's so many points and there's so many things to describe in terms of how the match turns. I've always tried to avoid that in my writing and stay more on the human side and sort of the general trends. And I think it's important to reach a bigger audience. And I try to do the same thing in the book. I've tried to really give people a sense from all that I knew and I tried to be as anecdotal with it as possible. I can try to give you a little peek into what made all these guys champions and then set up their matches. And I'm hoping people really will understand the era and that my real goal is 10 years from now, if you want to understand this era, which was a great era in tennis, and you want to understand what made Federer great, especially, this book hopefully will still have some relevance. So I've only been to the U.S. Open out of all of the majors, and I probably think it's twofold. One, life takes over, and two, uh, well, three reasons. Two, opportunity. Just, you know, I don't, I'm not a tennis only guy, for example, or I don't work, you know, in a huge marketer for a huge platform. And, and number three is location. I mean, I live in Syracuse. It's four hours from New York, you know. So um, I went in, in 97 um, when Arthur Ashe Stadium opened. I saw Sampras actually play at night. I met the Williams sisters when they were little kids, basically. Um and then I went uh, just recently, and I saw Nadal win uh, the U.S. Open a couple of years ago. What is what is it like at Wimbledon? What is it like at the French Open? What is it like at the Aussie Open? What are those Grand Slams like? 
I think one of tennis's biggest strengths really is that on-site experience um, in all those different places that you mentioned, because they all have their own personality. And, you know, you say a tennis court is a tennis court, it's still the same size in terms of the actual lines and where they are on the court. But you put the grass at Wimbledon with people dressing up in center court and it's sort of a temple of tennis. It feels more like an old globe theater in many ways than it does at the tennis court. That's just a whole different experience than people going nuts at Arthur Ashe Stadium with the now with the roof, the way the sound echoes off the top of the roof and everything when it's closed or even the overhang. And this uh, very intimate setting there versus the very kind of big city, big ticket item feeling in New York. So it's, and also the challenge of player space. I mean, the kind of tennis that works on clay, there are similarities, but there are guys who have that sense of movement and uh, understanding of the shots that work and the patterns that work on clay at the French Open that are very different than will work on other surfaces. So I, I think that variety is key. Unfortunately, I feel like you see it best when you go there in person, like you experienced. It's a little harder on TV to get that feeling. But I urge everybody who follows tennis casually to go out and take a look at the sport in person, whatever level. It can be a challenger tournament, a satellite event like the minor leagues tennis. These players are still great. Yeah. And then you really understand how much physical strain they're under and how fast that ball is moving and how much of a percussive game it's become. <laughs> I just scrolled through your Twitter timeline and I saw this tweet 16 hours ago you sent out. Chris, this is unbelievable. The last time there was no Williams sister, no Federer, and no Nadal in the U.S. Open was 1996, a quarter century ago. In fact, not only will it take time to get used to, but that 97, it was what I'm talking about. When I went to the U.S. Open, I look at these two, Martina Hingis and and, and, and look, look at these two. They look like the Venus. They look like they're in eighth grade in this picture. They might have been close. <laughs> they had teenagers, <laughs> I guess, right? What, what do you... Oh, yeah, they were. Yeah, they were. When, when we look back at this last run, I mean, it, it's, it's really spectacular. I mean, I, I've said for a long time, I'm 41 years old. I'm so lucky with what I've seen. Yeah, I'd love to have seen the Miracle on Ice or lived 1950s New York City baseball and go to Ebbets Field and the Polo Grounds and, you know, the old Yankee Stadium and see Willie Mickey and the Duke and, you know, those kind of things. See Babe Ruth and Lee Derrick, all that stuff. But, man, alive, every single day I cherish my era. Brady versus Manning, Federer, Serena, Martina and Steffi Graf, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, the Yankee dynasty of the 90s, and I'm a huge Yankee guy, you know, Michael Jordan, Tiger Woods, I mean, all of them have played in my lifetime, and I've been old enough to not only follow that and be a fan with it, but also being in media, being able to cover a lot of it, you know, and some of the great Super Bowl teams, uh, you know, the 80s 49ers and, and some of those rivalries when I was a kid with the Giants and the Cowboys. What When we look back, when you look back at, at, at that sort of angle from a tennis perspective, what are you going to remember most, do you think, about the Serena run with Federer, Nadal, Joker doing their things and the rivalries. And, you know, it's just been a hell of a run here the last 30 years. Well, you know, Mike, the feeling you're describing there very well is exactly why I wrote the book. Finally, I finally got off my, off my tail and wrote the book because that was why. I just felt like this was such a crazy, good era. And it says in tennis terms, but also you look at all the things you mentioned. You want to go European, talk about soccer. You got Messi and oh, Ronaldo sure. at the same time, too. Sure. So, I mean, those are two of the most amazing players ever. So it's been the golden era for sport in a lot of ways. We'll see if the pandemic kind of puts a line through it or not. We'll find out how things go from here. But yeah, for me, I just felt like it's been this big, long-running era. I've been chronicling it myself in tennis, especially about a lot of different sports, but tennis especially for you know, a thousand words at a time for a long time. And I just really wanted to try to capture some of those feelings you're describing. And 
and try to put it all and try to analyze it and, and find some common threads and really uh, yeah, put it all down for me to remember too, not just for people that are reading it. So I think, I think that's uh, when you get inspired by the era that you're in, I think that leads to, to creativity. Yeah? You want to you put the stuff down. All right, final thing. With Federer post-tennis, what does he get into? Does he get into, you know, designing tennis courts? Does he get into just his brand? Does he get into a business adventure that we don't know about? What, like, what do, you, what do you think he would kind of attack and get into post-career? Because those guys, man, they're competitive as hell. And when they stop, I've talked to so many former athletes, I know you have too, where when they stop, it's like they wake up in the morning and they're going, what 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 am I? What is this? You know, I'm sure he's planning now. But what do you, what do you see him getting into? How many things do you think he'll he'll attack post career? Well, the difference too, like you said earlier, a lot of guys stop at thirty and they got to figure it out. He's right. Rogers forty. Yeah. So he's already and he's been using his platform to build a business for himself for many many years. So mm-hmm. he's he's right in the flow, and I think it'll be fairly seamless that way for him. And he's got his four kids and and a life that he'll he'll slide into. But the interesting thing right now, I didn't get into this in the book because it wasn't clear when I was writing it. But he's got this big investment in the on the Swiss shoe company, which is supposedly got an IPO coming out that could make hundreds of millions of dollars. So he's very interested in sort of investing in select things. He's obviously well advised by Tony Gossick, his agent, and other people around him. He's been talking to Bill Gates a lot. They've been playing exhibitions together. <laughs> and and I know Bill Gates it's not that he wants to start Microsoft again, but he wants to use Gates's you know ex charity uh, foundation experience. And help them with his foundation. A few dollars between those two guys, huh, Chris? <laughs> say again, say again. What's Said a few, a few dollars between those two guys, huh? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, I think Roger's got a ways to go to catch up there. Yeah. But definitely, uh, wow. Roger keeps some pretty elite company. He can talk to the people and, and relate to them, but he's, a lot of his people he hangs out with are people with deep pockets. Oh, yeah. No, they're high rollers, no doubt about it. Chris Everett, the former American world number one tennis player, says Christopher Clary is the perfect writer to wrap up the gift that is Roger Federer's career. It's out now, online, where books are sold, Amazon.com, etc., Barnes & Noble, your local bookstores. Go get this book. It's incredible. It's called The Master, The Long Run and Beautiful Game of Roger Federer. The author is Christopher Clary. He's on Twitter as a New York Times tennis correspondent, at Christoph Clary. Chris, this was incredible. I can't thank you enough for coming on. Congrats on the book, and uh, hopefully I'll have you again uh, down the line here. Way to go. Hey, Mike. Those are great memories of your tennis time. I really appreciate hearing those, and it's fun to talk to a fellow tennis nerd. I appreciate that. ML Sports Platter is brought to you by Stanley Law Offices, Liverpool Physical Therapy, and Brian Conboy of Mass Mutual New York State. Go get your financial future in order today with Brian. Advisors.massmutual.com is the website. And, of course, he is on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. Brian Conboy of Mass Mutual New York State, the official financial advisor of the ML Sports Platter. Do want to send a tip of the cap thank you out there as well to Rosie's Corner, the Vince Aguera Consulting Group, the Syracuse Fitness Store, and our good friend Heather Saxon. If you're in and around the great state of New York or central New York, you know what? You're buying and selling homes. It is so stressful. It takes up so much time. Guess what? Heather helps you out making home more than just a place. She'll make it a feeling. Give her a call today. She's got the pulse of Central New York and beyond that real estate. 315-727-3313. That's 315-727-3313. She's on Twitter, Heather at Hunt as well. Heather Saxon of Hunt Real Estate is a licensed real estate 
salesperson. Thank you so much to Chris Clary for coming on the program. Go get the bio on Roger Federer. Hit me on Twitter at Mike L Sports and go find this podcast all over the major platforms. Download, subscribe, leave feedback, and a five-star review. And as I always tell you, enjoy the games. I've had my McDonald's breakfast deal. And I know this is true because before breakfast, (laughs) I put my phone in the refrigerator and couldn't find the keys that were already in my hand. Nothing gets the morning going like the first sip of an iced coffee. Get any size and any flavor for 99 cents until 11 a.m. Price and participation may vary. McDonald's. I'm loving it. I was out for my morning walk earlier when I got hit by that first falling leaf. That's always my trigger for a seasonal home spruce up. Because if there's going to be a hub for fall fun this year, it's going to be our house. So we went to Ashley Home Store and leveled up our hosting game with a new leather sofa and entertainment center that perfectly complement the new dining set. Tap the banner or visit ashleyhomestore.com to shop and spice up the season. Ashley Home Store. This is home. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.